Good day, everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of The Hope Dealer. My name's Ed McDonough. I'm The Hope Dealer. Yep, in guests, already jumping in, can't keep his mouth shut. Alumni of Gatehouse, medical license, does something else, not really sure what. Matt Lee, say hello, Matt. Hey, Thanks, hey, Matt. Hey. Um, so Matt Lee was on our was on the program when when I was before I went digital on the old intranet here the intraweb um, on radio and um, unfortunately I think he was uh, kind of overshadowed by a guy that we didn't think was really going to talk a lot that particular day another another alumni Joe not to knock Joe but I wanted to get Matt back in here because Matt has a, a good story. Uh, complacency comes to mind when I think of Matt Lee, mm. even in even before his days at Gatehouse. Um, so Matt, you're a New Hampshire guy, born and raised in Nashville. Not in Nashville, wow. Which is the home of Gatehouse yeah. Gatehouse Treatment Original. Full circle. Um, so you you've been sober a couple of years now, but I I want to go back. I mean, you were one of those guys that I think went in and out for a bit. Yeah, I mean, I the, my first experience with AA, um, with 12-step programs, wasn't until I was 30 years old. Um, I'm, I'm an You're old, 40 I'm now? Old 38. Oh, 38, all right, sorry. I know you like to push the 40. Um, so you, you when when I met Matley, for the listeners that don't know, Matley, was that was it 30 day treatment or was it a little bit yeah, longer? I was in detox in res in Manchester. Yeah. So for a 30 day and then you came to gatehouse, but you had some time before that. Yeah. If I remember. So let's kind of go back to, I wish I had like that cool sound effect, like the wavy sound effect. Let's go, let's back. go way, way back. Yeah. Let's go <laughs> way back. Um, let's go back to, you know, I don't want to get totally into your drink and drug and maybe we can, I can summarize it. Uh, you use a lot, IV, heroin user, alcohol, anything else, pills, started when you were how old? Uh, I started just experimenting with stuff at 14. Okay, 14. So then you had, before you came to Gatehouse, you had a couple of years, and then you, you relapsed. I had three and a half years. Three and a year, three and a half years. So I'm not good at math. So you got sober, you started at 14, before you got, the, when you got those three years, you were how old? I was 30 years old when I started. Okay. So a long, lustrous drinking drug yeah. career. Yeah. Wreckage, you know, because there is hope to this story. I guarantee you that. But a long wreckage of, of family, um, friends, yeah. anybody in your life. I think the wake-up call for me back then, like the reality of it was when my, fa- my stepfather told me that he didn't want me to bring my trash into his house anymore. And I was like 29 years old. And he wasn't talking about like the garbage. No. He was talking about me. Okay. You know, and like all the wreckage. Because I ran to my mother every time that I had a problem. Ran to my mom and my dad. And, and my stepfather was the one that finally like just put this put his foot down. So um, I went into treatment. Went into the halls. Got fully involved in it. Started doing step work. You know, but what happened. So, so, so let me let me slow you down here. So, you started doing step work. Mm-hmm. You started, you know, you were in treatment. You were staying sober, starting to, starting to assemble somewhat of a life, putting stuff back. Yeah. And then let's, I guess this is where we we highlight on the complacency, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you were you were doing step work. 
everything's starting to go good, right? Starting to get stuff back, relationships, family, yourself, everything. You're sober. What happened? Um, everything that I was re- uh, suggested to not do by the old timers, um, which would be relationships, a new uh, new career, and um, school. I did within the first year of being sober, and I think I put my I put too much on my plate, so something had to take a back seat, and for me it was the program of you know the halls. So so working so sobriety kind of in general. Yeah, and I think I stayed so sober out of spite for a long time. What does a long time look like? Two and a half years of that. So you were kind of, I mean, we would refer to it sometimes as like white knuckling it. Yeah, absolutely. But you weren't like communicating with anybody. And I think this is where a lot of times people get confused about like the complacency of sobriety, especially in, in the 12 step genre, right? When working the 12 steps and even in general, even if you don't have like, if you're someone that just goes to therapy or, you know, whatever it's like for two and a half years, you were not picking up a drink or a drug, right? No. But you weren't, like, processing those, like, thoughts that go into your head. And it's not even thoughts of, like, I want to get high. It's just, like, fear, doubts, insecurities, resentments. Life. Character, yeah, <laughs> life. So, and that's where, like, people don't understand. You, If you go, and if no one's ever been, if they go to a 12-step meeting, I guarantee in the first four or five meetings, you're going to hear someone say, like, oh, that's the alcoholic mind, or that's the disease. Right. And I think it's because there's a warped perception for, in my in my case, there's a warped perception between drug alcoholic, between alcoholic drug addicts like thinking, you know, like we just it's almost I I think I heard it described as like those like red lens glasses, like the world is like rose mm-hmm. for an alcoholic, meaning like we just a lot of alcoholics drug addicts see situations. A little bit differently. Handle them differently. Usually self-centered wise though. Absolutely. Usually someone says something and it's not like, oh, I feel bad for that person. It's like, how is that going to affect me? Right. Like, oh my God, they're they're going through that horrible experience. They're not going to be able to go to that concert with me. Right. Like that's the first like, bam, first right. off. It's that self-centeredness. So kind of give us a little glimpse into like what those, you know, two and a half years kind of look like. White knuckling it, you know, complacent. Thinking you got it, maybe, I'm sure. On the outside, to my family, to my friends, everybody was, like, super proud of me. I had an apartment. I had a relationship with a girl that I I loved and a daughter. Um, I had a nice car. I was in school on the dean's list. I was started a new career. Everything was, on the outside, looking in, looked so good compared to what it was. I'm sure you sold it, too. I was great at selling it. Yeah perfect at that you know telling everybody how great my life is however the stress that I had in my life the way that I deal with stress is by drinking and drugging that's how I deal with stress I'm an alcoholic so the way that I dealt with stress is I just bottled it up and I didn't I didn't I didn't deal with it that's how I dealt with it however those two and a half years of not doing a program and of me bottling things up it just turned into, like you said, like me selling it to people of how good things were. But then on the backside of it, I was still manipulating people. I was still lying through my teeth to people. I was still lying to myself so much that I believed everything that was coming out of my mouth. Um, 
I didn't process any difficult, like, like stressful for the, situations. So the person at home, you know, because I can relate, but maybe for like the person that's listening that's not, you know, suffering with alcoholism or addiction, like, wh- what does that look like? Believing it's like believing yourself, like, you know, maybe an example. Um, you know, I think that my plate was so full with stress as far as school. I went to school full time, worked full time, came home to a family. I was so stressed out because of how much stuff that I had on my plate, but I constantly told myself, it's okay. You can do this. You can, you can get through this. Yeah. No problem. You know, and, and I couldn't because I would just have to be put, I would be placed in certain situations in which I had to lie to someone and it was okay. Do I lie to this person or do I tell them the truth? Because the lie sounds better. Yeah. And it's just easier. Even if you didn't need to lie, you right. still lie. Yeah. It's just, it just, it's easier. It was easier for me to lie about situations and put myself in these situations where I had to cover up my life because of, I didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, I don't know how to give a specific example of a situation in which I had to lie. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you generalize it a little bit, but you know, it's, it's, it's almost like when, when I, I use this analogy, right? Sometimes when I, when I talk to like newcomers, like I'd be eating like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and someone would be like, Oh, you're eating peanut butter and jelly. And I'd be like, nah, it's tuna fish. Right. Like, for no good reason. Right. Other than like, I just didn't want them to know that I was afraid if they knew the truth, they would have to have a conversation about peanut butter and jelly. And like, I didn't want to open up. To that I person. can't tell you how many different times my schedule, my school schedule changed in a yeah. semester. I don't lie. Do I have to lie about that? Yeah. Because I don't want to hang out with you? Yeah. Oh, no, I got class tonight. Yeah. I thought you had class on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's Wednesday. Yeah. Ah, yeah, my professor needed to switch it up this week. Yeah, yeah. Just because I can't say to that person, oh, I don't want to hang out with you. Like, I'm too busy. And those those behaviors, like guilt, shame, remorse, even trying to keep the lies, like, it's almost like using, but we're just removing the substance. Yeah, and then the next week, it's like, oh, hey, you want to do something? Yeah. You don't have class. It's it's Thursday. Yeah, it's the, tiring. Uh, no, no, he switched it back this week. Yeah. You know, like it's just an endless cycle of me having to cover things up with my family members, with my loved ones, yeah. in my relationships, everything. Everything and, was a cover. And that was physically sober. Yeah. But we, but you weren't working on the behaviors, and that's you know that's something that a lot of people don't understand is like you remove the the substance physically, whether it be. Heroin, fentanyl, opiates, marijuana, like alcohol, list goes on. There's still those like learned behaviors and traits right. that the person suffering with, with you know, substance misuse, addiction, whatever you want to call it, like still has to work on. That that was what I needed to work on the most, and what I still need to work on on a daily basis today is my old behaviors. Because if I'm not aware of those old behaviors, they're so quick to come back, so quick. So so you. So two and a half years in, then, you know, give, give like, you know, I'm always trying to explain the disease to people that don't understand it. Right. So two and a half years in, what does that look like? Like, where does it like, did you just drive to your drug dealer's house one day? Was it like, oh, maybe I can have a beer. Maybe I'm so stressed out. Like, what is that? How did that look like? Like, where did, where did that complacency take you to relapse? Like, where's the bridge from? White knuckling it to just like, ah, screw it. Nah, fuck it. My girlfriend was pregnant. Um, she was on the methadone clinic at the time. 
so she was when she was in the hospital she had our son it was a very stressful situation it wasn't like everyone pictures a, a, a birth to be like the birth of my son it was I it was terrifying he had some medical complications um, she one? had medical complications okay. he was born um, early and she was hemorrhaging she was in surgery for three hours after having him emergency c-section um, my son had, was bright blue when he came out no amniotic fluid for him when he was in there mm -hmm. so they um, had to get, perform CPR on him three times right in front of me and like here I am like completely untreated alcoholic mind still yeah in Some this crazy stuff. situation yeah. like with this this stuff happening that I don't even know how to deal with my regular life and then yeah. you throw these things in them out yeah so pretty big big yeah. stuff and I think in the back of my mind I look back at that moment and I was relishing in it because of the people on the outside going oh Look at what he has to go through. Yeah. Look at how strong he's being. Yeah. Can you believe this? You know, so like there's that alcoholic mind right there of like the self-centeredness mm -hmm. coming out in a horrible situation. Horrible. Yeah. Awful. Um, so and once, just for the record, your son's okay. Oh yeah. He's great. All right. Just, he's wonderful. He's just born. Wanna, yeah. Just for the record. Yeah. I, I know that. But <laughs> for the listener at home, I don't want, you know. Um, so once. So isn't, so isn't, so isn't your lovely girlfriend. Yes. So, okay. So, but everybody made it. Everybody made but it. But we lost Matt Lee in the process. Right. So once everyone was all set, I had had, so she had had some methadone wafers at home. Yeah. I was like getting the house. Home alone. Getting the house set up for yeah. them to come home. And I was like, ah, just take a little piece. Off, I took one piece. They were gone. The whole bag was gone in a matter of 24 hours. Yeah. And I was off and running. And I had never used IV heroin before. And a week after I had, had taken that first little piece of methadone wafer, I was shooting heroin for the first time in my life at 35 years old. And how... And so... With two children. Do you... I mean, it's probably... You might not remember. You might do. But I'm going to ask it anyways. Did you... You know, did you say like, hey, like... I got home, like, what, what was going through your head? Like, I deserved it, or I'm just so stressed, or was it just you got, you know, you got, you're home alone, maybe you saw it, you know, and then that obsession kicks in. And I'm always talking about the obsession, because yeah. people never understand it when I talk about it outside of the halls, or in group room with a bunch of clients. But that obsession starts to kick in. I said to myself, oh, I could use a little little pick-me-up right now. I gotta, I gotta set the crib up, I gotta clean the house, I gotta get everything ready. It's been three and a half years. You'll be fine. That's exactly what my mind said to me. Mm -hmm. You'll be all right. It's it's been a long time. You can take one little piece. You'll be okay. Yeah. And do you think that was? And this <laughs> is you know this is where like in my own personal recovery why I like twelve step meetings is because on a daily basis or whenever I go to the meeting like I'm reminded of how powerless I am usually by listening to someone else or just by like watching, you know, for me is watching the person go up and get a 24 hour shift that maybe had a couple months or a couple years and gets a 24 hour shift and like talks about how they relapse, right? This exact story. I thought I could just do a little bit. Like reminds me of that powerlessness. Do you think like it's because you weren't keeping like the disease on your floor, like of how bad it could get? I kind of slipped in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that not working on those old behaviors and not being reminded of where I was, it's 
easy when everything comes back to you. Yeah. Like I had, I, I had a great life from all people looking on the outside in. Everything was great for me. You know, my family was healthy at that point. I had everything going for me. I had a fantastic career and with a great company. I was doing great in school and, but it's just, you forget where you, for me, I forgot where I came from. I forgot how bad it was and because also, of how good things were. There's also that spiritual connection. Yeah. I didn't pray for at least two years yeah. at that point. You know, and prayer for me today is vital. Yeah. It's just a part of my, because the first time, I feel like my relapse started at least a year and a half before it actually I actually picked up a drink or a drug. Before I picked up those wafers, I, I stopped praying. I stopped doing everything that I did for the first six months to a year that kept me sober. You know, like my sponsor says, don't forget the basics. Meetings, prayer, calling your sponsor. Yeah. Those three are three cornerstones for my sobriety. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people that are active in the halls, those three things are very important to them as well. Most of them. I mean, most my experience has said that most most of us with long-term sobriety kind of all do the same thing. Right. Because it seems to work because long-term sobriety is doing it and that's, you know, that's a whole nother discussion I can I can get into. I can have a whole nother episode but to stay on task here, mm-hmm. we're battling through on complacency. So you relapse. How long do you think that relapse lasted? That relapse lasted over two years and I lost everything. And then... What brought you to get sober this time around? You lost everything. I lost everything. Kids. My kids, everything. Yeah. I had nowhere else to go. I had nowhere to go. It was either live in my car or go to treatment and stay in treatment. Because throughout those or eventually two, go to jail or well, something like that. Yeah, something like that was bound to happen. Um, during those two years of me on that run, I probably went in and out of 15 to 16 different treatment centers. 15 or 16 and how many years two years that's that's impressive between like detoxes you know like i would go to a detox so a couple days stay for four days and be like "Ah, i'm good yeah i would my my thing was i drove myself to these detox centers and said i have nowhere else to go i need to leave my car here yeah but it would also give me a way out it was my disease working saying oh just go here spin dry you got your car you can leave whatever you want yeah, and that's what I did. Um, but finally, I had, it was winter. I'm gonna live in my car. My parents weren't letting me stay at their house anymore, and I needed to stick around and and see what happened. I, I needed to give it a chance because I I think at that point too it was like I was exhausted. I was so tired of that life physically and mentally. Yeah, I just I didn't I couldn't do it anymore. I was 35 years old father of two hadn't seen my kids in three months no job nowhere to live I don't know how I still had my car well I did I still had it because my parents were paying for it mm. you know um, so it was like all right the get for me it was like the gig was up it was time for me to try and make an effort at getting things back so you you went into treatment came to gatehouse after after detox and residential, scared came to came to gatehouse scared. Then what started to happen? Um, I started to see people around me. 
that were like happy and that were slowly in front of me getting things like a guy who was in in I was living in a sober house with for he was there three months ahead of me I saw him starting to get things back got a job got money in his wallet got his car got his going going to see his family for lunch and I'm like oh and smiling and laughing and happy and it was bringing things back to me of like how quickly I can get things back in my life if I'm doing the right things. So I started to do the work. You know, I had Joey K on my, on my ass about getting the work done. And fortunately I had people showing me the way. And as I start doing the work, I start getting things back. I got to see my, my son for the first time in, you know, at that point it was four months mm -hmm. and it was amazing. And, and so as you continue to stay sober, how did you avoid getting complacent as you started getting those things back? Awareness. Awareness. Talk of what, about that for, I think, tell me more about this awareness. I think awareness is key because like being aware of my old behaviors, being aware of what happened last time I went through, um, being sober, um, talking about things I'm going through rather than bottling them up, continuing to go to meetings, but also having people around me that are going to call me out when I stop doing certain things. Um, the people I have around me today make me aware that those old behaviors are right outside the door waiting for me to, waiting to jump on me. And it's not, I mean, it's not anybody. I guess it would be a trusted few. Yeah, it's not. It's it's probably, I'd say, four to five people in my life. But but you've come to have that trust with them, and I'm sure it works both ways. Absolutely. From my experience. But it's through kind of getting honest with each other, right. but continuing to, like, help each other. And that's, like, the fellowship part, which I guess a lot of, again, a lot of, there's a lot of misconceptions about, 12-step fellowship in general and recovery. I mean, I, I spend my whole day trying to break stigma most of the time. But there's that, like, misunderstanding that, like, some of these people you'll learn to trust because we're also dealing with a population that doesn't trust easily. Kind of it's like nature of the business, I guess. When, right. when you're doing illegal behavior, even, even drinking every day, you're trying to hide something that's self-destructive for you. You don't trust people, right? Right. So that's a whole new learned. Yeah, learning. trusting people was very difficult, but when you go through early parts of sobriety and these people are always there for you, you end up building some trust with them and, and trusting them in turn as well. I mean, that my house manager is one of my best friends. But he'll be the first one. You know, I was I talk about it a lot. I'd rather have a group of people around me that will stab me in the chest and not in the back. Mm -hmm. They're going to tell me how it is. Um, you know, and, and I still have that today because even today I, I get complacent because I'm too busy. I have school again. I have, but all these things, they're all red flags for me. I have school. I play sports. I have my kids a lot more than I did back then, because um, back then I didn't have any kids the first time I got sober. So it's yet another stressor in my life that I have to be weary of and be cautious of the fact that these things, I won't have any of them if I don't do the basics. 
And we and we were talking about like getting things back, and I was talking to someone that's very knowledgeable, more knowledgeable than I am in a literature, any literature, any kind of recovery literature. Probably at this point, we were talking about, you know, you hear a lot about the the promises, right? Um, that you know, they people will call them the AA promises, and when you're battling through the steps. They are the step nine promises. Yes. Which in, in the book, they say, you know, they're, they're there. These are the step nine promises, which means in order to start, and, I, and for those of you, I'm not going to recite them. It's a little homework. You can, you can Google the step nine promises and read them yourself. But it talks about getting this stuff back. Not all, not all material, some emotional, some mentally, you know, stuff like that. But you, the steps are in, in an order. So to start to go through that. So... I think sometimes when, you know, I sit and back and observe a lot, it's a lot of times the complacency, sometimes the first year everybody's like gung-ho. It's like a new car, you're going to vacuum it, wash it every weekend. Then you've had it for a little bit and you're tired and you go to work late and you're like, ah, I can, you want to know what? I can throw that bag, that empty bottle on the ground, on in the passenger seat, right? Everyone always throws it on the passenger seat, right? <laughs> I can throw that Starbucks egg bites on the way to work, you know, and I do it all the time. And then, then it's, oh, I'll clean it out on Saturday. And then a little bit while it's, oh, I'll clean it out next Saturday, right? And I think it's the same way, hey, it's, it's, as a lot of people do their, in, in the 12 steps in general, I don't want to bring any particular fellowship, but particularly they do those first like nine or 10 steps vigorously. Yeah. Because they want to live and they don't want to live the way they were and they want the obsession removed and they don't want to have to, you know, be under the influence of the disease, physically sober or not. And then they get there and it's like, I got it. I'm good now. I can manage it. Even though, you know, step 11 and 12 is like a daily thing. Right. You know, it's it can be kind of mass in other ways. And I think that I think what when I think about complacency is as is, is sometimes we have these conversations with with some of our clients and five or six months and they're at a sober house and they're fine and they think it's good. And it's like the worst thing for me to ever happen early on in sobriety was like, I missed the meeting and I was going to one every day and I, and then I missed two meetings and I missed three meetings in a row. And I know I can do that nowadays sometimes, but I remember the first time it happened, like even today, nothing bad happens. That's the worst and that's thing. the worst thing for complacency in, in, in my own sobriety. Because nothing bad happens, and then that's like, starts to like wheel in my head. Like, see, you don't need this anymore. You don't have to sit in a, a basement of a church. You don't have to call anybody. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to pray. Everything's more important. Like, you're good. It's like, it, it comes back to like ego. Like, you're good. Especially when you have all those things back. When you have those relationships with your family. When you have a job. When you have a car. When you have all those outside things that make everybody think you're doing really well, it's so much easier to let things slide when nothing happens and you have things. If you don't have those things, if you don't have those things, you're going to keep working hard so you can get those things back and you're going to do whatever it takes to get those things back. But once you get them, like you said, it's easy to just kind of be like, ah, yeah, I got it. I got it now, so I don't need to work as hard. Mm-hmm. I got that car. I got that job. So I don't need to work as hard as I did in order to get these. But for me, I think today I'm trying to strive even further in my life. 
I don't, I'm not happy with what I have. I, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for what I have, but I don't want to get so complacent where I get too comfortable. And that's me being too comfortable is a bad thing because when I'm too comfortable, then those old behaviors start to come back. And it could be like one little, little white lie mm-hmm. and I get away with it. And it's like, oh, see, you got away with that one. So you can fib a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, it might even just be like stretching the truth. You know, stretching the truth isn't me being vigorously honest to the people that I have around me today, which is one of my goals on a daily basis. It's what I pray for every day to be a better person today than I was yesterday, to be honest to myself first and then to the others around me. So if I stop doing those things and get too comfortable, those things are going to come right back and take everything from me like that because I it happened. Mm-hmm. That first relapse, within six months of that relapse, everything that I had earned in those three and a half years was gone. Everything. Car, family, kids, relationship, gone. Yeah. And, and it happens 99.8% of the time when someone relapsed. Right. And it happens like that. And that's why it's, you know, you hear things such as like constant vigilance. Um, and, and, you know, you said, you said like, you know, that saying like, if you never stop doing the basics, you never have to go back then, you know, um, because that's what we see, whether it's here at Gatehouse whether it's on a 12 step fellowship, like I see it, we see people relapse and I see it all the time. It's like the same 12 things. And it usually boils down to because they just didn't think they need to do it or they didn't care to do it. And then that all centers back to like, when we talk about that powerlessness, that's not over the substance itself. It's over those like thoughts and feelings that like my disease wants me to pick up any substance. It doesn't care whether it's opiate, some crazy stuff from China we haven't even heard about, like <laughs> marijuana, alcohol, wine, like the list goes on. It just wants me to be able to feed it, to be like that, you know, to have that constant, like I need to get out, escape. Right. You know, like alcoholics drink because they like the way it makes them feel, you know? So it's like, how do I combat having to f- the need to feel like that? Right. You know? And I, I think that my disease will also tell me that you know, you don't need to do steps 10 through 12, but there's 12 steps for a reason. There's not, it's not the nine steps. It's not the four steps. It's not the five steps. It's 12 steps. There's 12 steps for a reason. And if I want to continue to feel that relief, I need to do the 12 steps because for me, I tried to do it without the 12 steps. I tried it my way Mm -hmm. and my way led me to relapse and led me to losing everything. Like I said already, So it's important that I stay vigilant. It's important that I have people around me that are going to call me out and say, hey, why aren't you doing this? Haven't seen you here in a while. Why don't you come meet me down there? You know, like, and it's it's not them being a jerk to me. It's them because they actually care. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to see me go through those things again that they they know I've been through. Um, And I think it's important. It's But complacency is very simple for an alcoholic and addict to fall into because like I said for me at least it's like those things all come back in your life and you think hey look what I did I, it boils <laughs> it down is it it's and when people don't you know how can the complacency not there is ER rooms filled with diabetics 
who decided today that they didn't want to take their shot or I forgot it and I ate a cupcake and I'm fine. I can do it tomorrow. And then they go into insulin shock, right? Just from not taking insulin. And you would say, how could you forget that? Like, I don't know, life happens. Sometimes people forget it. Sometimes you're running out the door, you wake up late, you forget to pray. Sometimes you're, there. there's a list of stuff that goes on on why someone can forget to take, do something that's life-saving. The same as people on, I mean, as our medical liaison, you deal all the time, like, why don't you take this medication? Why don't you take your blood pressure medication today? Why don't you take this medication so you don't have a seizure? Like, ah, I forgot it. Like, you've, it's life-saving. And, it, and now you put that with a disease that's already frowned upon in the world anyways. Like, why didn't you go to that meeting tonight? Like you said, you were going to, oh, I had to meet a girl. I didn't want to tell her. Like, I mean, the list goes like, oh, right? There's all kinds of excuses that we can use. And, and it boils and it comes back to complacency. You know, yeah. like it's, it's not at the forefront of my mind. It's not going to kill me today. I'll roll the dice. Right. I'll roll the dice. And I say you don't have to battle like that. No, you don't. Right? Well, Matley, it's always a pleasure having you on. I know I'm keeping you back from doing some important things here at Gatehouse. Saving lives. We battle every day. We save lives. Um, thank you for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure. Uh, I thank you, everybody for listening to uh, episode 17. I think I got something big for next week. But if not, it will still be good because that's just how it rolls. Um, so I appreciate it. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll stay tuned, Matt. Have a good day. Don't get complacent. Keep battling. Yeah, keep battling. Don't get complacent. Everybody, thanks for listening. You're listening to Hope Dealer. My name is Ed McDonough, Gatehouse Treatment CEO. And uh, this has been your Daily Dose of Hope. Thank you. Yeah.